Brother Zafrir said that God is not wanting to do a remodel, that he's wanting to do a complete new creation. Amen. What is it in us when we are looking at buying a piece of property, as I've often done, we're doing cost assessment and we're saying, well, it's going to cost me about this many thousand to fix the kitchen and this many thousand to take out the floor and this much to repaint it and this much to do the outside and and then I'm going to have to count in about a 20% contingency. You know, we're, we're calculating whether it's worth it to embark on the process. Jesus was a builder. Amen. He was a carpenter, carpenter's son. And he said, don't start unless you first counted the cost. He said, some people will, will see what you've started and they will look and begin to mock. Sounds like a builder. How many of you ever seen those buildings that got the Tyvek up? You know what I'm talking about. Three years later, there's no siding. There's no windows. And that poor Tyvek is like tatters. And you laugh. You say, what were they thinking? Jesus was a builder. He had seen people get that far. And he saw how sad and ridiculous and what a waste of energy it was. And and so he said that we had better count the cost before we start the building and know whether at the beginning we have what it takes to finish it to the end. It's scary to start a building process, right? To reconstruct, a, decon a deconstruction and a reconstruction. It's scary. There's like this, this spot in the process where you cross the line of no return. And up until that point, you're holding all your cards, you're... You're checking and double checking. If it's this time of year, you're looking at lumber prices saying, that is ridiculous. I've never seen something so high. And you're just, I don't think I'm going to do this. I don't think I'm going to do this. Oh, maybe if something comes through. But it's all a bargain. It's all a bargain. It's all cost analysis, cost-benefit analysis, right? But what about when it comes to our soul? What about when it comes to our life, our walk with God? Do we have the same metrics for analysis? Well, you know, what's the trade-off? Maybe it's worth giving up a little of this and even giving up a little of that. And oh, I think I could do without that. Well, I guess it comes down to what you feel like he's worth what you feel like his sacrifice is worth. And if you're a good economist, a good legalist, you're going to say, well, I, I think it's worth, it's worth anything. So I just want to pay what I need to pay and not a dime more. I'm waiting for the prices to be better. I'm waiting for a deal. I want to make sure that if I give something, I get a good trade-off. How would you feel if a spouse did that to you? You say, will you marry me to the person you want to be your fiance? And she's like, well, let's, let's talk about the cost-benefit analysis. Now, well, let's see, what do I get and what do I lose? I lose my name. I lose my bedroom. Um, I lose my independence on some level. Um, so just spell out for me, what, what do I get from you? And if you entered into the conversation on those terms, it would be pretty absurd, right? Well, I've got a bigger bedroom. <laughs> uh, I can give you a new name. I mean, the whole thing would be strange and backwards and inside out. But that's exactly how people come to God who don't love God who don't live for His glory, whose hearts have not been captured by His love, purchased by His price, they're engaged in cost-benefit analysis. And they're trying to see what are the gives and takes and does this add up? And if they don't watch it, 
They may even be persuaded. And that's the worst thing possible. Because if you enter into the agreement with that perspective, you're dead in the water. You're going to be constantly analyzing and assessing whether your sacrifice got its full dividend. Paul said, if there is no resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. If the power of God's life is not a reality in your existence, if His Holy Spirit, His Holy Resurrection numinous Spirit is not a reality in your life, you ought to be the most miserable person imaginable. Paul is saying, take the power of God's resurrection life out of the equation. You ought to be miserable. If you have found the church, it ought to be the place least compatible with fleshly living. It ought to be the place that grates on you, buffets you, offends you, squeezes you, inhibits you, frustrates you until Christ be formed within you and a new empowerment of grace starts to flow through you where you could say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. You see, I believe with all my heart that God is speaking to us tonight already, not, not just through what I'm sharing, but in everything that's been coming forth. And I believe we're eternally accountable for that word. So I believe that it's quite possible people will walk out of this room having missed the answers to prayers that they prayed perhaps in the last 24 hours. I think it's quite possible people will kind of daydream right past answers to questions that are plaguing them on the inside. Because they don't have a heart for God. They don't have that sense of being owned by God. He said, why do you not hear my words? Because you don't belong to God. You have to surrender yourself to Him before you can understand what He's saying. But I want to, I want to try to speak to those who still have an ear to hear. And I'm obviously not speaking to the well, but I'm going to speak to those who are frustrated, those who are stuck. Because if we, if we become stuck and we don't get unstuck, we're dead. We're dying. That's what Jesus meant in John 12 when he said, walk while you have the light so that the darkness does not overtake you. The darkness is an active thing. It's right on our heels. And if there's anybody in this room that's stuck, I want you to just close your eyes for a second and ask yourself, does the word stuck describe me? In any way, in my spiritual walk. Okay, now, I'm talking to you. God wants to get you unstuck. But there's something about the way you're listening. Something about the way you're feeling, interpreting, assessing yourself and evaluating God that is leaving you stuck. But if you'll open your mind and your heart right now, God just might bring along a tow truck to yank you out of those ruts and onto a new place of grace and momentum and victory. It's, anybody want that? Then listen, listen. Listen especially for the things that your flesh tells you you already know. Because God wouldn't be speaking it to you again if you already knew it. Let's, let's read this passage from Romans 2. I'm going to read from an alternate translation intentionally. Verse 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? I'm reading here from the text. Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? To bring you to repentance? 
But because you are stubborn and refuse to return to turn from sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourselves. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking for the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves. I'm just going to repeat that verse right there. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. There are a couple things that emerge from this passage. One, he says, does it mean nothing to you that God is showing you kindness intended to bring you to repentance. Then he says that the reason you're not coming to repentance is because you're stubborn. Third, he says, through your stubbornness, you are storing up wrath. You are building up an account, a debt, that Jesus is not satisfying at Calvary, but that is waiting for you in eternity. And then, marvel of marvels, his framing of the sin is simply to say, these are people who live for themselves. This horrible wrath that is coming he does not say is coming to wretched, horrible, monstrous people. The only specific identi identifier he gives us is that they are people who live for themselves. Your Bible may say self-seeking. Well, that word is a little bit ambiguous because what, what does it mean exactly? Are you seeking self? Perhaps. Are you seeking on behalf of self? Certainly. It just means that your effort is going for the benefit of one. This one, self. And so I want to ask you, how many of you are familiar with the scripture, it is the kindness of God that brings us to repentance? Well, that's the scripture we just read. That's why I read it from a different translation to help us to listen a little differently. The kindness of God brings us to repentance. How? How does the kindness of God bring you to a change in your life, you who are stuck? How would His kindness bring you to repentance? Let me give you an option, and uh, I'll try to duck any fire that comes to me from these brothers. Basically, it's not worth it. I'm not going to repent until somebody is nicer to me. Does that work for everybody? Why not? I can think of my own experience. The kindness of God is what somebody can be said. This is just a work. This is not right. You're not doing it right. You've not changed. Brother David said that in his own life, the kindness of God that turned him around was when somebody came and said, this isn't right. This won't work. It's unacceptable. You've got to change. Does that make you think of a scripture, if a righteous man strikes me? It is a kindness. Amen. But I want you to talk to me about what he's meaning when he says the kindness of God brings us to repentance. What do you think he's meaning? What, I want someone to give me a definition of what that kindness is and how it brings us to repentance. How does God's kindness bring us to repentance? Thank you. 
Uh-huh. Amen. I accept that. Okay, let me ask you this way. Would you have written that if Paul hadn't? If someone wanted to know, how do I come to repentance, would you have said, well, it's the kindness of God that brings you to repentance? Would you have said that if that wasn't in the Bible? Is that, would that have been your way of phrasing and putting forth repentance? Because I'm going to go so far as to say I would not have. I would not have thought to phrase it that way. There's a lot of good things in the Bible that I would have never thought of, but it just doesn't comport exactly with how we think of repentance. And so we have to be sure that we're understanding him right here. Can I read a couple scriptures that might shed some light on it? I just was thinking about sometimes when I've read the story about the woman in John 8 who is caught in adultery, you know, and they, they bring her to Jesus because they, they're expecting that he's going to judge her for what she's done. And then he, you know, he, he draws in the ground and all that, but he, he basically says, whoever is without sin, you throw the first stone. And, but at the end of it, everybody is left. And he says, does nobody condemn you? And so I, he says, neither do I. And then he tells her, go and sin no more. And it seems like it's always struck me, what, what motivation did she have to go and sin no more? I mean, that seems like that would be a fruit of repentance, right? That you would go and sin no more, that you would turn away from your sin and be motivated to live for God. It seems like it had something to do with this mercy, really, that was shown to her when she was facing what she really deserved, and then God showed to her the kindness of saying, you know what, there, there, there's another way that this can be handled besides judgment. There, there's another way that you can find uh, change in your life other than to just, you know, execute you. And, and did that not motivate her to get up out of, off of her face out of the dust and go and change your life. Amen. In that sense, we think of Romans 12, right? If you think of repentance as surrendering the lordship of one's life and exchanging it for Jesus's, then we can think of Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I think that's a very relevant way to look at it. But notice that he says... Do you think nothing of his kindness? And he juxt and he, he describes the state of thinking nothing as stubbornness and refusal to turn from sin. Okay? So now let's look at 1 Peter 3 and 20. Does anybody want to read that to us? Go ahead, Zane. You want to stand up, please? Amen. So I'm just going to read in the New American Standard. The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So during the construction of the ark, why did the ark take so long? Because the length of time that it would take for Noah to come into complete obedience was the length of opportunity for the sinner to turn around and think differently of themselves, of God, and their course. Does that make sense? Let's just flip over to 2 Peter 3.9. I believe this is the best parallel to the Romans 2.4. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In Revelations 2.21, he speaks of this woman that he terms Jezebel. And he simply says, I gave her time to repent, to change her inner self and her sinful way of thinking, 
but she, no, she has no desire to repent and refuses to do so. So I believe that the kindness that he is speaking of is time, opportunity to repent. We consider the long-suffering of our God as salvation, the patience of God. In the days of Noah, the patience of God kept waiting. But while it was waiting and we weren't changing, we were storing up wrath. Until the day came, hopefully, when we turned around and we said, God, this is not a matter of just cyclical going back and forth doing the same thing. This is a matter of you holding back what I deserve, hoping that I will get my act together and come to repentance. That is the kindness, the kind patience that affords us opportunity and time to repent. And in the, in the, in the Genesis 6 passage that he's referring to there, that patience came to an end. There was a day when the ark was complete. There was a day when the door shut. And the kindness of God was done. So Paul says in Romans 9, Behold the kindness and the severity, meaning to sever, to cut off of God. Those who had the right attitude, they received kindness. And those who persisted in their stubborn refusal to turn stored up wrath in the day of wrath. So the kindest thing that God has done is he's given us an opportunity to repent. Now how do you know, what is he talking about? This kind of repentance where it's on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again. Is that the kind of repentance that he's talking about? No, I don't think so. I think that's self-delusion. I don't think that's repentance at all. Paul speaks of a repentance not to be repented of. Repentance is turning from yourself and your sin. But you can also turn from repentance. That is to say you can repent of repenting. Now what is someone who repents and then repents of repenting? Enter someone spinning in circles. Enter Mount Sire. Okay? I'm sorry. I'm back. I'm sorry. I'm back. I'm sorry. This schizophrenic walk with God. This is what King Saul was plagued by. Can you think of a time when he encountered David or Samuel and he didn't humble himself on some level? Oh, I'm so sorry. I have sinned. Forgive me. And was that the end of the matter? No. Because he had come to a repentance that he would later repent of. I remember a man who was behaving untowardly in South Africa, and that's putting it kindly. And he, was, he would not refer to us except as wolves. And we went and confronted him. And the truth broke through his lies. And even though he was full of hatred and bitterness, right then and there he stood up and he began to weep. He asked us to pray for him. He turned around. But was that the end of the matter? No, within a week's time he was back where he was before. He had returned to the vomit. Amen. So there's a cyclical nature to this insufficient repentance, to this partial death. You know, when you're when your immune system gets attacked by a deadly virus and it is very sick, that sickness lays you low. It depletes your body. It slows down your movement, causes your bones to ache as they produce white blood cells. But in all likelihood, your body is so resilient that it is going to withstand the ultimate onslaught of that sickness. And it, eventually it may take you a week, it may take you a couple weeks 
But eventually, you're going to start to get on top of it again. And praise God when we're talking about deadly viruses that are intended to kill us. Praise God that he gave us an immune system that can surmount that. And, and once we've surmounted that flu, that flu in that precise iteration can never come to us again. Amen? It's got to change shape. It's got to change its form in some way in order for our bodies to be vulnerable to it again. Now we can say this in terms of sin and amen. That's also true. But it's also true of how the Spirit wants to put to death the deeds of the body. You have to think of the Spirit as a deadly pathogen to the flesh. We said that the church ought to be the place least compatible with life for the flesh, for fleshly living. Amen? So the Spirit, everything about the culture of Christ is intended to harm, to disable, to handicap, and kill the flesh. The flesh wars against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are at enmity with one another. They are irreconcilably opposed. There's no peace treaty. Somebody's going to live and somebody's going to die. But when you allow the Word of God to lay you low for a couple weeks, to slow down the movements of the flesh, to make it hot and feverish with conviction in meetings, but lo and behold, about two weeks later, you're back up walking into the same patterns of behavior. You have survived what God graciously extended intending for you to put something to death. Now you ask yourself, are you one of those people? Have you sat in meetings and known with a profound God-given certainty that he had just answered you? That he had just provided you with grace? That he had just opened the door? That he had just rushed in with transformative power? Have you sat in meetings and in the certainty of his word been convinced you were going to be different? You were going to be changed? But lo and behold, you just keep circling Sire on again, off again, on again, off again. You have never come to the level of repentance that God requires and insists upon it offering and offers you never amen you have not come to a place where that mortality of the spirit against the flesh would be more than a nuisance and would become a liberation freeing you from this body of death you have not gone deep enough you have developed antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Antibiotics of the truth that once, that should have put it to death, they're not working anymore. How many of you have had, ever had to take an antibiotic and know, whether for your animal or for yourself, know that the doctor is very emphatic or the pharmacist is very emphatic? Brother Mark, tell me if I'm lying. He's very emphatic to say every time, make sure she takes all of them. How many of you ever heard of that? Come on, give me a hand. You know what I'm talking about. Make sure she takes all of them. Now what's he saying? He's saying this virus is powerful. And if you don't take the full regimen, if you don't keep at it until it is completely annihilated, what you're actually doing is teaching it to overcome the antibiotic. If you push it down, if you suppress it, your symptoms are going to improve. But if you let off as soon as your symptoms improve, that bacteria in your system is going to learn how to get around that attack from the antibiotic. And there is sin inside of us that is every bit as resilient, every bit as powerful. And it wants you to bring on the antibiotics of truth and it's willing to suppress itself for a few days and change the symptoms. 
but it doesn't want you to stick with it all the way to the finish line. It doesn't want you to get to the place where you have less trust in you than anyone or anything in the world. Not as a conceptual acquiescence, but as a worldview, as the way you view the world, it, it starts with a profound distrust in self that makes trust in God so much easier. Your liberation becomes a question of extent. How far will you take it? How far will you take it? Will you begin to question the perspective that views the world through judgmentalism? Will you begin to recognize the rebel that hates all forms of authority, even though it pretends it only hates this one and that one? Will you begin to diagnose the utter narcissism, the hedonism that would make a black hole out of this individual made in the image of God? Or will you just learn to manage your symptoms? Keep it under wraps, knowing that one day it's going to grab you again just like it grabbed you before. Amen. How many of you know the story of when Elisha was about to die and the king of Israel was paid a visit by the ailing prophet? And the prophet took Elisha to the window. Uh, the, uh, excuse me, Elisha took the king to the window. Excuse me. I believe it was Joash, yeah. And here's this man who's been a father figure to the king, the man the prophet's about to die. Now you put yourself in his shoes. He knows that in all likelihood, this man is going to face some real tough challenges. So he, he takes him to the window, and it says specifically that he had the king pick up a bow. And it says that the prophet put his hands over the king's hands. Everybody following me now? And then he said, string the bow with an arrow, and the prophet put his hands over the king's hands. Everybody following still? Do you get the imagery of a dad with a boy? That's the only time you ever see that, right? Older hands over younger hands. And he says, now, open the window and shoot that arrow. So with, his, with this covering help, the king pulls back the bow, Elisha's aged hands on his, he shoots the arrow. And he says, so shall your victory against your enemies be. And then the whole scene changes, and he takes these arrows that are left there, in the quiver next to where they had shot, and he just pulls them out. It's almost like he thinks of it second. Something was discerned by Elisha. Something was missing that he felt in the king. And so he takes these arrows and he puts them in the hands of the king and he says, hit the ground. Now, straight up, that's a bizarre thing to ask anybody. You, you think that it isn't, but it is. I mean, if I just walked up with that mic stand and said to Brother Danny, hit the ground, what would he do? He would worry that I was okay. And at best, he might go, okay. Amen. So he, t he hands him the arrows and he says, hit the ground. And what does the king do? He hits the ground three times and he looks back to Elisha, the prophet. And what does the Bible say? It says the prophet was angry at the king. The prophet was furious. Here's how victorious you are when pastor's with you. Here's how victorious you are in the meeting when bigger hands are over yours. Here's how victorious you are when you're sitting at the table with dad. Okay, now... Buffet the flesh. Mortify that flesh. Go on. And it angered the prophet. Because it's tap, tap, tap. And he told him, he said, you should have beat it five or six times. There was no magic number. He just wanted to see a zeal, a resolve, a 
fervor, a lethal fervor, rise up in this man. Whatever it takes, God, I'm going to get the victory. And instead, he saw tap, tap, tap. Now, what's your tap, tap, tap? Is it a testimony on Wednesday? A testimony on Friday in a private conversation with your minister? What's your tap, tap, tap? Or to switch back analogies, how many pills do you take? You know, we, we use the term in English, that's a tough pill to swallow. When you start coming under the power of God's word, you're going to start seeing something in you that is awful. And you're going to have to decide, am I going to swallow this pill? How far am I going to do it? Well, you've got to decide whether you're trying to control symptoms or be transformed. Because everybody that's trying to control symptoms, you're in the wrong place. But if you want to be a different person, then you better use that time that represents God's kindness to make a change while his grace is still present. Hallelujah. I gave her time to repent, Revelations 2.21 says, to change her inner self and see her sinful way of thinking, but she has no desire to repent. This is somebody who's in the church in Revelations. You see, nobody can bring you. Nobody can repent for you. You can bring a man to Calvary, but you can't force him to repent. To, to put a little twist on an old saying, you can lead a man to Calvary, but you can't force him to repent. And so they're likely going to hide behind delusions that they're sanctified and justified and all set and done by other models, by false models. But God is kind when he gives us time to repent. What does repentance look like? Well, we tend to describe repentance in terms of what it isn't, right? Or in terms of negative terms, through negative definitions, right? He repented, he's no longer doing such and such. And that's a legitimate definition of repentance, but it's, it's not the whole or else the disciples would not have, the apostles would not have glorified God that Cornelius and the Gentiles had received repentance unto. Because they saw that the mortal condition threatening their soul had been mortally dealt with. Death had suffered a death blow. And so life was possible through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. In the most positive sense, repentance is making Jesus the Lord of your life. Making the Holy Spirit the Lord of your life. For that to be possible, everything about you has got to change. You've got to tune into that spirit. You've got to learn to follow that spirit, to hear that spirit. You've got to learn to be quieter than that spirit. You've got to learn to love that spirit, to seek that spirit. To live for that presence, it'll totally change your life. Amen. In 1 Timothy 1, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am, for, I am foremost of, of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul was saying, if I can get there, then I am a big poster child of transformation. If this guy can change, anybody can change. If this persecutor, this murderer, this proud Pharisee among Pharisees, if he can change, anybody can change. You know, it's interesting here that he says he was worst among sinners. But in Philippians, he said that according to the law, he was blameless and a Pharisee among Pharisees. Isn't it amazing that someone could be blameless according to the law and the worst of sinners at the same time? 
Well, it's only remarkable if you don't understand what Christ's righteousness really looks like. Amen. You say, well, how do I know if I've come to repentance? What's the fruit that we've given you several times recently? The fruit that the people didn't have when Jesus cleansed the temple. There's a big hint. What's the clearest fruit of repentance that John the Baptist was referring to? John said, go bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Jesus cleansed the temple. When they rejected it, he went right back to John, indicating they hadn't borne the fruits John had asked them to bear. What was the clearest fruit? Recognition and acceptance of an authority outside yourself that comes from God. Because that's the question they asked. By what authority? Right? So it was a challenge of authority. If you have removed self from being Lord and Jesus is the Lord of your life, you're going to recognize it when he starts to speak to you through others by the same spirit. The same God working all things in all persons, right? 1 Corinthians 12. You're going to recognize it. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by that spirit. But if you know that spirit and you're broken to that spirit, you're in that place. No matter how hard it is on your flesh, you're going to say, this is a hard saying indeed, but where else can we go? This is still the word of eternal life. So the first fruit of repentance that I believe we can give is a dethroning of self that is evidenced by a recognition of another Lord, the Lord who is the Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. And so someone who hasn't come to repentance is going to be very picky about where they're at. Like, I think I can submit to him or her, but not him, not her. They're going to be very picky because it's, they're still trying to preserve something, right? They're very cautious. They don't recognize that the Lord is the Spirit and these are just His vessels. They feel like they're special and they feel like they should be treated with speci by special people. Amen. But somebody who is truly coming to repentance, who is truly broken, feels like they're a dead dog, feels like they're a good-for-nothing wretch, and they're just so grateful that anybody would have the time for them, that anybody would condescend to help them. Now, if, if the Lord is convicting you right now, remember, were you stuck? Because you could get unstuck right now. You could get unstuck right now. If you could say, God, I know I haven't come to repentance until I know I can recognize and embrace the authority of your loving word wherever it comes from. That's the first fruit. Amen. We, we, we want to make sin a circumstantial reality. We don't want to acknowledge that it is a nature problem. We want to make sin anything but our fault. We want to make failure everything but this right here. Okay? So we will shop out ways. We will invent scenarios to misdiagnose so that we don't get the lethal dose of God's word that would put to death the deeds and the will of the flesh. Amen? How many of us know that the flesh inside of us wants a misdiagnosis? What does a misdiagnosis look like? What if you took your father, your mother, who was dying of cancer, to an oncologist, coughing, suffering, restricted breathing and oxygen depletion, and you take him to an oncologist, and, and the oncologist puts his stethoscope to their chest and says, hmm, there is a lot of hay fever going around. Why don't you take some of this allergy medicine? Would you rejoice that he had given you a medicine that was easier on your system. Hmm? Because we all want discipleship that's easy on our system, right? Come on now, don't we? And so would you rejoice that he had given you a medicine that is easy on your system? Oh, thank you. I can accept that. I can take that on board, no problem. Thank you so much. Or would you scorn him for failing to discern the lethality of your condition? For failing to recognize that you were at death's door. And a little bit of Claritin. A little bit of Claritin doesn't do anything for cancer. Amen. A little bit of Advil doesn't do anything for cancer. A little bit of Tylenol doesn't heal cancer. And so people who are willing to, to give you these 
easy on the system solutions. They're frauds. They're quacks. They're charlatans in white coats. Coming in the name of Christ, saying all you have to do is this, all you have to do is that. But somebody who really loves you is going to say, this is going to kill you. This is horrible. You have got to come to repentance. We have got to array our heaviest duty drugs against this. Because if we don't kill it, it's surely going to kill you. And you say, oh, I don't want to do that. I'm going to lose my hair, my image. I'm going to lose my appetites, my pleasures. But if you know you're dying, you say, bring it on. I can score the cross, despising its shame, because I see joy of life set before me at the other end of this. God, take it all the way. Don't, pull, don't hold anything back. Help me to come to a complete repentance until this dying turns to liberation. Thank you, Jesus. Is it sweet? Is it kind to give you Claritin when you're suffering cancer? I taught on child training in my, one of our groups a couple weeks ago. And I shared this principle that I'm just going to wrap up with. You will never be as diligent in training a child, crucifying your own flesh, or discipling a saint. You will never be diligent enough to be fruitful until you see the deadliness of the sin you're combating. If you don't see sin as death, you will never employ measures to eradicate it. If you have learned to coexist with rebellion, if you have learned to live alongside with spiritual dysfunction, you will never employ the measures that are necessary to combat it. Okay? So let's just give this as an example with a child. I've got five children, six on the way. If one of my kids picked up a glass of milk that wasn't theirs, I might, you know, do like this. Right? Right? Now, if they picked up a bottle of poison, if the four-year-old picked up a bottle of poison thinking it was milk and started taking it toward his mouth, what would any loving parent do? The world wants you to believe that love is sweetness. The world wants you to believe that love is tolerance of sin. But love is doing whatever it takes to save someone from something that ends in death. We know that desire, when it is conceived, brings forth sin. And when sin is finished, it brings forth death. When you see a character trait inside of a child, a spouse, a disciple, that you know is going to threaten their eternal soul, and you're like, you're not loving. You're a horrible parent. If you saw a... a, a, a a parent with children walking through Walmart and, and the kid goes running down the wrong aisle and the mother's like, Johnny, 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 come here, Johnny. You would roll your eyes. You might even think she was a really terrific parent. But if you were at the Grand Canyon and that child did exactly the same thing and the mother said, Johnny, Johnny, as he goes racing toward the brink of a Grand Canyon, of the Grand Canyon, you would come unglued. You would say that is a horrible mother because you would have been terrified by how close that child came to death while the mother preserved her phony image. While she tossed out Claritin. I'm mixing metaphors, but you can keep up with them. I know you can. It's not love when something deadly is at work in your own soul and you don't want to go all the way. You just want to deal with symptoms. And it's not love when something deadly is at work in the soul of someone under your care and you do the really terrific parent call. Johnny, Johnny. Any real loving parent, if they saw their child, if they saw a clock out in the front of an old clock from mom out in the road and they saw the UPS truck barreling toward that clock, 
They might be like, oh, 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 that clock. But if their child was out there, they'd break through glass, they'd run pell-mell, they'd fall down in front of that truck to get their child out from under that truck if he was in harm's way. When you love someone, you do whatever it takes to save them from death. You lay down your life for your friend. Even if it means they're going to hate you and not understand what you've done, you do it because you love them. But if your child, if you're looking at your child more like the clock, then you see sin barreling down the road and you're like, well, you know. You see rebellion lurking beneath the surface. The Bible says that stubbornness is as witchcraft and rebellion, idolatry. How many of you have ever seen how God deals with sin and thought, wow, that's overreacting. Come on now. You put somebody in a garden and they took one bite and you chased them out forever? Don't tell me you're not tempted to think it's overreacting. Or maybe he has a different insight into the lethality of sin than you do. Or maybe you see Moses, whom God has just called and anointed at the burning bush, heading to Egypt to do his great calling, and the angel of the Lord is standing there ready to kill the man who would give us the Ten Commandments. Why? Because his wife was from a different culture and she didn't really want to trouble the kids that way. Remember, she didn't want to circumcise them. It's like, oh, God is just so overreacting. Or maybe he looks at disobedience differently than you do. Or Saul sacrifices one day early before Samuel shows up and, and he's permanently rejected from being God's king. Oh, that's overreacting. Or Jesus is walking with his best friends and, and his, best, his closest companion says, Lord, I'm not going to let you die. And he says, get thou behind me, Satan. Oh, that is overreacting. Or maybe he understands human nature better than you do. Maybe he's trying to alert us to the vigilance it's going to take to put this flesh to death, to find freedom from the bondage of sin and not merely management of circumstances. You see, you cut yourself slack. You say, oh, it's just this and it's just that. But God knows those things, when they're conceived, they bring forth sin. And when they're finished, they bring forth death. And if you could catch sin in its infant stages, it would never bring forth death. You say, oh, I can rebel against my husband. I can have a snide and condescending attitude toward him. I can hold him in contempt. Really? Really? How do you know that you're not letting a dynamic fester inside of you that is witchcraft and idolatry. The Bible says that you should walk in your place because of the angels, meaning that there is angelic judgment frowning upon such disorder. You say you can rise up again and again because you have misdiagnosed your problem. You have said my problem was my circumstance. So you change your circumstance and the problem comes with you. You go to a different job and then another job and another job because it was that boss and it was that boss and you're so eloquent and quick and capable of describing all the circumstances that created your problem. And oh yes, it's regretful that I did this, but circumstantial. No, it's not. There's something inside that has got to die, that has got to be taken to Calvary, that has got to crumble and be toppled as a king deposed from his throne once and for all. How many times will you circle Sire? You're miserable. We see it. You're unhappy. You're judgmental. You're quick to be offended. Everybody sees it. And some of you are sure that I'm talking to you. No, I'm talking to the flesh. And if it matches the definition of a hundred people, then I'm right on. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm talking to the flesh. It is so predictable. You tell yourself you're an exception. You're not an exception. You're exactly like everybody else. 
You've just given your weed longer to grow and you think it's a tree that describes who you are. God is waiting for you to take it to Calvary, to dethrone this thing, to take the lethal dose, to hit the ground and stick with it and don't give up until it is utterly annihilated. Okay, now we're at the conclusion. The chain is hooked up to your truck in a rut and God's asking you, do you want to be pulled out of this? Amen. And he's telling you, you don't go all the way if you would stop coming short. If you would learn to take it, if it's the last thing you do, take it all the way. If you would consider his time as opportunity to repent, you would see how kind he's being to you. And you wouldn't. He says, don't you see how wonderfully kind and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to bring you to repentance? But because you are stubborn, you refuse. Amen. So the kindness is not merely a wooing that seduces you out of service of flesh in one dimension into service of flesh in another dimension. The kindness is the time, the long-suffering of our God, which is the same as salvation because it gives us a chance to come to repentance. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he wept and he said, If you had known, even you, what made for your peace, but you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Brother Howard has told us that that word time means a fleeting moment which a person must drive through with force if success would be achieved. Fleeting moment. How do you know that this time right now from 7.30 to 9.05 was your time, was your opportunity, was that space in a lifetime, an hour and a half plus five in 30 years, 40, 45, I don't know. How do you know that this wasn't your propitious chance, that this wasn't God's kindness? Maybe you felt convicted through the whole message that I've been preaching but I've carried on this long to bring you to a place of decision. God has borne patiently with you. He could have said one word, but he said one through the song and another through a brother and another through a sister. And so much now through his word. There's a time. There's a propitious chance right here, right now. And the idea that we have time to change, that is the very definition of divine kindness. He's kind to us tonight. Do you feel it? Amen. Make a change for God's sake. Hallelujah. Please come to the mic and read that. I have pursued my enemies, overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. <laughs> they have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued me, subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies, so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was no one to say. Even to Yahweh, he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. Amen. I have subdued my enemies. I have chased them. I have struck them down until they couldn't get back on their feet. Is that what you've done with the excuses that have robbed you of grace? Is that what you've done with the thing you called your perspective that was a lie and a delusion? Is that what you've done with your vanity that has competed for God's glory? Is that what you've done with your hatred of authority that is merely your own authority masquerading as God? Is that what you've done? Have you found these enemies of your soul and beat them as fine as dust and shook them out in the streets? That is the totality. That is the perseverance. And until you've done that, don't complain to me about a lack of consequences, fruit, or victory. 
Don't complain to me about a lack of joy, fulfillment, or relationships. You are trying to coexist with two centers, a center in self and a center in God. You have a house divided against itself, and you're in a constant state of earthquake. Choose one center. Choose one. If Yahweh is God, serve him. If Baal is God or flesh, yourself is God, serve him. But don't waver anymore. 